seems cold and bleak and you just can't take it anymore. Here it comes, that glimmer of hope, a light shines through the door. It's a hopeless show, with Aaron and Rohit, whoa. It's a hopeless show, with Aaron and Rohit, whoa. Here to welcome you to the big episode 65. Aaron, what is happening, buddy? Dude, I wonder when we're going to stop saying what episode we are doing. I think after episode 69, I think we just wait until it's like 75 maybe and then brag about that. Or episode 420. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> then we just do that's a lot. In the year 2028. <laughs> yeah, we hit episode 420. <laughs> We're actually today going to cover a little bit about that talk, about a bunch of topics, including some 420-esque things. And yeah, we have this news from the quarantine because this show is, is odd. There's a lot of pieces that are really disconnected. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the The theme is, and it is written. So I just was thinking at the end of each thing we talk about, we have to say, and it is written, because I always find when people say, and it is written after talking about something, it feels important. So do you agree? Yeah. I also believe, um, isn't that also from the Quran? Uh, it was written or it, um, the Quran was written. Yes, it was. It was a few years, but, ago. and it was written. Is that phrase from it? It is written. Is it, it was written. Uh, and it is written like, yeah. like I could say, I just peed and it is written. And it sounds like I had an important pee. Yeah, you know what? There's a solid chance that you and I may not be up on our latest theology quotations. Um, <laughs> no. So, yeah, I might just take the preemptive L on this one in case there's any listeners out there that can correct us. Yeah, you you guys help us. And so news from the quarantine, I'll just say right now, I am miserable. What? I am miserable. So my current news from the quarantine is I am miserable because at the office, the air conditioning broke and it is so hot and I am miserable. So this episode, I might be cranky and it is written. Yeah. So now it's important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do look like you just finished playing game six of the NBA finals. Um, I did, yeah. <laughs> well, I did that too. I did that too. So I'm doing both. Oh, and, man. and and then the the 420 thing. So big, big news from the quarantine is and it's, it just blows my mind. Snoop Dogg turned 50. 50 Snoop Dogg is 50. Oh my. That just blew me away. <laughs> Jesus. I remember when he was young. Yeah. And when he was like up for murder and he went to j jail, I think. And he was just. And he was this like true like kind of thug gangster rapper, and now he's in every single commercial and TV show and everything and animated movies, and he's just in it all. Yeah, I saw this Twitter or sorry, this Instagram post called it was like titled like Snoop is just doing the most, 
And it's just like his cameos <laughs> in like Korean or K-pop band videos, um, the Martha Stewart stuff. He's hawking like made for TV shit. Like he's got a winery. He's he got does everything. it all. He does it all. And I think one of the things was one of the comments was um, Snoop finished the main mission. Now he's doing all the side quests. <laughs> <laughs> that that makes sense because he's. Uh, I spent. Uh, time with him on a project and he's really a smart smart guy he was very business savvy and and interesting and cool and just a good dude yeah. i was lucky to spend that time with him and he uh so i'm, I'm not surprised that he's just become this giant mogul of a human yeah i was talking <laughs> just does everything i was talking to him at a party at chateau marmont a couple of years ago the dude was just sitting there standing by himself just like smoking like a a blunt, like there's like a little joint more so that was like the size of like my thumb it was just a big fat joint um and so we we're just kind of hanging out and it was <laughs> not intentional timing sorry dry throat but um, um yeah it was the dude's very cool yeah sure um, yeah very cool so we got to both brag about being around snoop too which is good and it is written yeah <laughs> <laughs> wonderful way to tie back yes yes <laughs> so we have uh we have some we're gonna do things a little different today because we have i didn't even say this yet we have a huge interview today we have a great guest gary k wolf who is a uh, best-selling author and comic writer and the creator of roger rabbit the film, the character, the concept, Toontown, all of it. He created it. And we are going to get some really interesting insight from him today about, about Hollywood, his, his career, and some details about things both hopeful and hopeless in movie making that you just won't know. Like, you'll hear it here first. It's really going to be an interesting one. So I'm excited to talk to him and bro, this should be a fun one for us. Yeah, it's it's been a minute since we had a guest um, because, you know, we've been, I kind of just on a roll, the two of us, but it's really nice to bring some folks back onto the show. Um, yeah, it'll be great to talk to Gary. And and so and it is written because he's a writer. There you go. That's easy. <laughs> that was a good tie in. And so should we do a topic one? I think I think is important. It's. Ice Cube. Yes. Now, now, Ice Cube, Rowett, he really pissed me off. But I don't know if it's for the reason that you think it is. Uh, if you read, he exited a film called Oh Hell No, starring Jack Black. And then I guess he was the co-star. And mm -hmm. Jack Black, who I think is one of the most talented people, like, ever. And... He turned down the movie along with, with with he was going to get paid nine million dollars. And the sole reason is because they want him to get vaccinated and he won't get vaccinated. And before I, I want to hear what you have to say before we talk about that, I, at this point, I don't if you want to get vaccinated or don't want to get vaccinated, that's up to you. It, I think you're stupid if you don't, because it will make. COVID cases like what Rohit has had and what I had, not bad. 
yeah. instead of you might die. I, so, I but that's on you at this minutes. point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's like, so I'd recommend getting vax versus maybe dying. But at this point, I don't do whatever you want. I'm not going to be one to tell you what to do. What I am pissed about, though, Rohit, very upset, is you know who doesn't have $9 million? Me, you, or most people. And to have the opportunity to make $9 million and to say no simply because you don't want to get a stupid shot just really pisses me off. And like this guy came from nothing. We all know his story. It was a hit movie. He's talked about it ad nauseum about his life and movie and career. And then to just, I just think it just, it sets such a wrong example. Forget the vaccine part, just about like taking, like taking things for granted and not remembering where you came from and do like, there's so many people who look up to this guy and he's just saying, bye-bye $9 million. He could have done that that nine million dollars and then given it back to like charity. Then, if he's so upset about this, I don't. It just really made me feel hopeless that someone would have the audacity to do that. It's so much money. I mean, here's the thing: it's one. I think yes, it's kind of further, just further delegitimizes vaccines, which we've been taking forever. Like, dude, we take polio vaccines. We take measles mumps rubella we take we go through a whole regiment of vaccines and the anti-vax crowd just used to be like really annoying like crystal soccer moms you know and now it's like a big giant part of the country and a part of the world and it's like some freedom thing it's like no man it's like i, I don't know it, it, this scares me that this is like further like cementing the the anti-vax movement what I think is the one positive yeah. I'll take away from this, even okay. though, and this is maybe a glimpse of hope, even though I completely yeah. disagree with the reasoning, I respect that I, Ice Cube was able to stick to his convictions. I don't agree with them, but I respect that somebody could walk away from $9 million or something that they believe in because John Cena did not do that do you remember when he mentioned Taiwan being a country and then issued some fucking like really cringe apology to the Chinese Communist Party that he then recorded in Mandarin? And <laughs> like we talked about it on this show and I was like, you yeah. pathetic, pathetic man. And I also, you know, I... <laughs> Taiwan is its own country. Um, but I also, uh, and please don't kill a CCP. Um, oh, man. But we're gonna get killed. John Cena could have, that's a moment where I wish somebody stuck to something that they said and not go back. And I do wish that Ice Cube did not walk away from that $9 million. But if anything, like I said, even if I don't agree with it, I, you got to respect somebody that has the cojones to, to do that, to walk away from what he did. I guess it's like the opposite of what I think, but I also hear that point of view. So I'll just say it, and it is written. <laughs> and hope Kong it. <laughs> if you if you could tell, I'm kind of enjoying this theme. <laughs> <laughs> and do you want do you do you want to talk about? There's some 
crypto news that that uh, I just don't even know what to make of it. Go on. Or, or, I, or I, I can talk about yeah, it if you want. Go on. So there is a new cryptocurrency that got released. And, you know, we like talking about cryptocurrency. It's fun. It's funny. You just lose a lot of money. And then there's a cryptocurrency called Squid Game. <laughs> and, like, there's, like, a game. <laughs> and it came out, like, this week. It's up, like, 40,000%. So whoever got on, or no, 2,170%. So if you got into, in 24 hours, <laughs> the last 24 hours. So uh, if you got into the squid game currency market, you're now rich. <laughs> now, what's weird about it is there, there's like a part, I haven't seen the whole show yet, I'm about halfway through, but there's a part that's like a game apparently, where in order, when you participate, you'll be asked to set a preset price. And then when there's different show characters in it, and then you like have to put something like $33,000 at a time up for grabs and like you might not get the squid coin or something or you might get it. It sounds really weird, but and people are already saying that it's really illegal and really wrong. But I just think it's crazy that there's like a coin and you have to put up this money and you might get it, but you might not just like in the show, you might die and all it's just wild <laughs> man this gets me thinking aaron like if they're making a squid game coin why don't we make our own like hopeless coin yes a coin that we guarantee you won't make money <laughs> <laughs> or we can be completely open about it be like this is a pump and dump scheme we're gonna let we're gonna yeah. this time get in early and then sell and then let's just see where yep. we get to i wonder is that illegal and this is all hypothetical if the IRS is listening to this podcast, we are completely joking. You know, this is partly a comedy show. We would, um, so we would never do we that. We would never ever do that. Um, and yeah, dude. So how should we do it? Um, if we're to hypothetically speaking, you know, on the internet they they say like you have to add in Minecraft when you are talking about certain legal activities. Oh, it's like, wouldn't it be crazy that we did that in Minecraft? So in Minecraft, if we were to start a hopeless coin, um, what we could do is, I think it costs like a couple hundred dollars to like start your own coin. Um, we'd list it on one of these exchanges. Um, and then we'd have to determine if it's like being backed by like Ethereum or Bitcoin or uh, one of the others. And, right. um, and then just like, we could probably put out a notice, but Hey guys, we are going to do our own pump and dump scheme in Minecraft and then have <laughs> everybody join uh, us on this online server on uh, this game um, in Minecraft in Minecraft. And yeah. And we're like, okay, we, I'm in. Yeah. Like it's just let's do be it. a fun experiment. Yeah, let's do it. And then that's the way that we'll get rich finally from crypto and other people will get rich with us. And can I say it? And it is written. And it is written <laughs> in Minecraft. In Minecraft. All right, we just brought. We are on a roll with yeah. hope today. Oh my god! And then, so there's a sports update. I don't know if you saw this, but it it really irked me. And then we'll get to our interview. There's two things. Uh, the first, did you see what Tony Romo did? Row it. 
Tony Romo, former football player, current broadcaster I love for Tony, the NFL. I don't know what he did. So what he did is some guy was given Tom Brady through touchdown number 600. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, who's who caught it? Mike, Mike Evans. Uh, Mike Evans caught it, right? Yeah. So he caught it and he gave the ball to a fan because he didn't think that maybe Brady would want that ball. Yes. And, and so Tony and for Romo. Those football listeners out there, that 600th touchdown pass was the most in NFL history. The first time a quarterback has thrown for 600 touchdown passes. So that ball itself is, it belongs to Tom Brady when Mike Evans caught it. Um, but anyway, continue. Yes. But he gave it to a fan. So then they had to get the fan back. And. Tony Romo made a joke about what Brady should give to get him to get the ball back. And one of the things it was like, you know, money and a trip or something like that. And then he said, or a date with Giselle, who's Brady's wife. And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. These kind then people were irate about how he was, uh, like being mean to Brady's wife and all this stuff. Like to me, that's just, it's not the funniest joke, but it's just like people say that they could say it about Brady too. Like, Hey, you get a date with Brady. I don't know. It just, it didn't feel like a thing that people should be so up in arms about. Like our culture has gotten so sensitive to everything. That anyone would, says I would love it if I was in Giselle's position. People said that about me. I'd be like, you know, it's such a compliment. I guess mainly because men don't get paid compliments, you know. Um, so I probably cannot perceive this as a woman perceives this in life, um, right? You know. Um, so and we have to say everything like that now. Like you can't understand who, like the other person, all that other. It's like it, I, it just. Why don't we get catcalled? Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> and this it was just like a comment and then people get irate by it and I just I don't know, it made me feel like we just no one can say anything. Even when it's something just stupid. Like you just can't say anything anymore. We talk a lot about cancel culture, yeah. but this is just like come on. Social media was a mistake because it gave everybody a voice. Yeah. <laughs> and and there's uh yeah, so that I don't know what you think about it. I just thought it was like, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. It, it, that's, like, who cares? It's a whole nothing burger. Um, or it it's be. a nothing burger. Exactly. Yeah. But it was a nothing burger that was written about on like every thing. So um, every page. And I see Aaron, you got another topic here called the Astros tweet war. Well, yes. So the Dodgers didn't go to the world series. The Astros did. They were busy. Sucks. They were busy. Dodgers didn't want to do it this year. It wasn't it wasn't the year of it, w- it wasn't their time. They didn't just couldn't care. Make it. Yeah. Don't want to do it. So, I without knowing it, got into all of a sudden people, a lot of people started writing me and retweeting a tweet I made last summer during the pandemic. All these Astro fans and they kept they start shaming me like so can I I'll play you the tweet yes. what it is 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 it's me during the pandemic in lockdown when the Dodgers played the Astros and I couldn't go outside or do anything so 
I was I put a tweet of me booing the TV and then there was an app on my phone where you could boo so that they'd hear the boos in the stadium. So I did the boo app and I just did a video of it. I had no recollection of doing this. And so let me play the tweet for you. <laughs> I hope you can hear it. So you can see the video video footage of it on my Twitter if you'd like. But the that's it. That's all that happened. Now, people, the Astros fans somehow found this tweet and retweeted it on different Astros fan sites and stuff and uh and started going after me as a person <laughs> and thought this was my identity. So like one guy said, you, sir, need to get laid. Twitter is a collection of stupid posts. Some of mine fit that. But this was the most pathetic thing I've ever watched. <laughs> uh, another guy wrote, um, let's see, I'm trying to find all of these. It was wild. Like people really just hated me for this. And like then people were retweeting it and t like someone... They a lot of them went after my virginity, <laughs> and that was a a very common uh, theme. Uh, you should just link them to your OnlyFans to prove that you're not. Yeah, exactly. Then so someone someone said the oh someone did a picture. I'll show it to you, and you can see it on Twitter. Someone did a picture, uh, put a found a picture of me, and put. Mickey Mouse ears on me with a blue hat that says the LA Dodger logo. <laughs> so that was funny. <laughs> uh, and let's see what else, like I'm trying to find. There's a lot of them. Is this, a lot of people is, just kept. Is this insensitive to say, but I just noticed yes. now do the Mickey Mouse ears that you get from Disney world sometimes look like a yarmulke with ears. Yeah. It does. It's actually, it's very anti-Semitic. It should be canceled. <laughs> they don't have Mickey uh, Turbin, sadly. Uh, but. No, no Mickey Turbin. No, no Mickey Turbins, which is, yeah, so why just yarmulkes? <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, so I'm curious what you think of this, because I was just kind of blown away by the the level of hatred and... And it was just, and there, the, there's just some comments I can't even read. They're just really mean. <laughs> well, but I'll say this: the biggest thing was my virginity, <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that I'm like the biggest loser in the world because I'm booing the TV. And at one time, at point, I had to explain to them that it was during the pandemic, so I don't usually sit and boo the TV for thirty seconds, <laughs> but I couldn't do anything, and I was bored, so I did. Yeah, I feel like Astros cheated, by the way. Yeah, they're fucking cheaters. Um, but I feel like you should just like lead into it. Right. And to respond to the Virginia people, like, be like, you know, claiming you're a virgin and all that. Be like, no, I finger my butt all the time. There's no way I'm a virgin. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh man! But <laughs> so that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. You could pin it um, on your Twitter profile. <laughs> your thousands of people. <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> and oh, oh. Well, I did. There was a, a famous thing that went down in L.A. called the Small Dong March, where people were, uh, were did a did a march for for people who shame people with small penises. So I sent the flyer back to one of them and said, I know where you'll be on Saturday or something like that. <laughs> That's pretty good. And and then. Uh, and then he wrote, the fact that you have a flyer for this March says it all. You must you must be giving the keynote speech. Damn it. <laughs> and then I, and then I'm like, dude, you know, the Internet where you can just find things <laughs> like I don't have five of these flyers. And then let's see. Um, oh, then they then they were also calling me a casual fan. That was the other thing that I'm a casual fan. You only like, go you, to, do they think I mean, you anyone only go to about 45 games home, a year. Like, yeah, and anyone who's sitting at home booing their TV, I feel at the, at the very least that proves that they're not a casual fan. Yeah, you filthy casual. Well, on your first the, with the previous comment, I think it's it's you know sometimes you can just like win them over and be like, God damn it, you got me! Like literally, like damn it, you are. <laughs> and they're like, Oh man, now it's not even fun to make fun of this guy anymore. And then you, if you take away that joy from them, it's like, ah, oh, and he's nice. God damn it. Cause they want to hate you. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's, it's a weird angle, but if it makes you feel better, Aaron, I saw a map recently. Um, and it showed the continental United States 46 out of the 40. And it's like a color map for who's rooting for which team in the world series, the Braves, Atlanta Braves or Houston Astros 46 out of 48 States were blue for the Braves. Texas and only one other state was rooting for the Astros. What's the other state? Delaware. So for some <laughs> what? I don't know. Um, and then what about Hawaii and Alaska? I think, they didn't count. I think it was, I only saw the continental, so I don't. I didn't see them. Um, but uh, then I was at the my first concert in almost Delaware. two years. Um, and Delaware. It was the Strokes over at the Forum amazing fantastic show and julian casablancas lead singer of the strokes he was just started talking shit on the braves because he's a mets fan uh and then he played there's during the encore he played their song ode to the mets which is a really good song actually um yeah he's a diehard mets fan i know that mets fan big mets fan so i respect that he he he's someone that that now you see where his uh his pain as an artist comes from um so Wait, so so he just went just started going on a rampage about yeah, about, like, they got about a, the Braves. Like they got a stupid racist chant and he's like, I hate their name. I hate them. <laughs> he's just like <laughs> he started talking shit on the Braves. Did people cheer? They he he's he was then like like fluffing up the Dodgers a little bit. Um he's like, Yeah, Dodgers are really good. Da, 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 da. So he was like complimenting the Dodgers because I think So then know, they cheer. He was playing to the audience. Yeah. But um So then people cheer immediately. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he, he knows how to work a crowd. Um, <laughs> That's cool. You went to that show. Yeah, it was fun. So let's. Was it great being at a? Was it great being at a, a live show? Yeah, and it was one of my the best shows I've ever been to in my life too. You know, we got those floor passes, and after scouting for a long time, and just a magical, magical experience. And just like the way they treat those floor guests, uh, chef's yeah. kiss, yeah, private facilities, private food, drinks, all that shit. It's awesome. 
um, in great view. Um, cool. Well, let's move. Let's on. go into this interview. Yeah, yeah, big interview with Gary K. Wolf, and let's hear what he has to say. Aaron, take it away. Well, it is a pleasure and honor to have Gary K. Wolf. No relation to me. He is, among many other things, an author, a, an esteemed writer, the creator of Roger Rabbit, and an all-around great human being. Oh, so, thank, thank you, Aaron. And I got to tell you, it's, uh, right back at you, it is such a pleasure to be on a show that uh, is being conducted by what I consider the guy I consider to be one of the foremost young directors in Hollywood right now. And uh, lately his movie Tar, which I highly recommend uh, streaming right now on Amazon and in all places where good movies stream. Highly recommend it. I, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more from uh, from Aaron in the in the coming years. Well, this uh, this whole interview is actually just a promo for myself. So thank you, <laughs> as Gary. Well, as well it should be. As well as uh, so thank yeah, thank you. So thank you for that. But no, what we what we do want to do, and I, everything you just said, I appreciate. Thank you. Is uh, I want to go back in time to the Gary Wolf beginnings as as we dive into some hopeless topics with you, some things that I know you've had to. Uh, overcome in your career and some amazing things that have happened. But first, your beginnings, I don't know how many people who follow your career know some of the work you've done, know that you, about your, your time as a, as a fighter pilot. I was an air commando. And the, the reason was that in my hometown where I grew up, a little town called Earlville, Illinois, um, the high status people were the, the people who had gone into the military to become military officers. And that was very high status. And I didn't know what else there was to do in the world. So I said, I want to be uh, an Air Force officer. So um, I, uh, I went through ROTC um, and then joined the Air Force. And um, I was what they call a regular officer, which meant I was on the career path. And uh, it was 1967, uh, 66, and um, my boss came to me and said, Gary, you know, if, if you want to make the Air Force a career, uh, you, you got to get your card punched. You got to get a war on your record. And I said, you know, fine, I understand that. He said, well, there's this, there's this little thing going on right now in Vietnam, and it's <laughs> not going to last very long. So um, you better volunteer for it. Get over there. You know, spend two years, get a war on your record, and come back. And he said, and you've got to go over there as an air commando because it's all volunteer. They're not taking anybody who doesn't volunteer and you'll go over as an air commando. I said, great, fine, you know, sign me up. So I signed up. So anyway, I spent uh, I spent two years uh, two years in Vietnam as an air commando, and uh, lost all respect for uh, a the government, b the military and lost all interest and desire in uh, wanting to make the military a career. So uh, the first thing I did when uh, uh, when I got back was put in my papers to get out. And another interesting thing, uh, this was way before Roger Rabbit and way before I ever started writing. Uh, and as I say, I had come from uh, Hanscom Field in, in Massachusetts, which is outside of Boston. 
Well, the deal that they made me when I volunteered, right, was that when I came back in two years, that I could pick whatever duty station I wanted and I would go there, right? Because at the time, there were less than 10,000 guys in Vietnam. I mean, it was, it was really a, a kind of a fun war at the time. Uh, and uh, um, so, you know, there came time for me to come back by the time two years went by, they were there were there were ten thousand guys when I came. Two years later, they were there were ten thousand guys a day coming into Vietnam. I mean, yeah, it, it had become a mess. It had become a, a major major problem and a major war. So uh, when it came time for me to come back, um, I, I went to my personnel sergeant. I said, "Hey, Sarge," I said, "You know, I'm rotating out of here. Um, I, I've looked at all the air bases and places that are available." And here's where I want to go. And there was, in Hollywood, there was a very small uh, liaison office, Air Force liaison office, that liaised with companies that wanted to make movies about uh, the Air Force. And so they had five guys there, and that's what they did. I said, I want to go there. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, that was my deal. You're going to send me any place I want to go when I come back. He said, oh, we stopped that six months ago. You're going where we tell you. And they sent me back to Hanscom Field, where I had come from. And I, of all the places in the world, I did not want to go back there because, you know, I had some unhappy relationships and uh, I just didn't want to go back there. But they sent me back there anyway. Uh, they did. They did. And it turned out to be blessing in disguise because uh, um, I met my wife. I would not have met her had I gone to L.A., because it's fascinating to, you know, this is, these are the beginnings of you into adulthood, figuring out what you're going to do. And then you completely switch. You find, you find writing that you, as you said, you weren't, you had no clue that that was where you would head. Yeah. So I, yeah. what, what switched to, to become where you became a uh, writer, novelist? Well, and, um, I've, and always, I've always been a big reader and I give, I credit that to my mother. My mother told me, she said, you know, if you if you want to get out of this town and you don't want to wind up running your father's pool hall, the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read. Just read, read, read. And that that with the, the knowledge that you gain is what will get you out of this town. So I read it as a kid. I mean, she got me my first library card when I was five years old, and I would go to the library and get books and bring them back and read them. And, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, I was a kid, so what did I read? I read comic books, right? And my mother, God bless her, never once said, don't read those, read Shakespeare, <laughs> you know, read Dickens. So, you know, comic books were fine, it was reading. And the other thing that I read was um, magazines that my dad read. And my dad read these magazines called True Crime Magazines. And I, I don't know if they exist today or not, I, I hope not, but um, what they were were magazines that featured stories about true crimes, usually horrible murders. And uh, they were illustrated with actual crime scene photos. So I spent a year writing a short story, it was called Love Story, and um, sent, it off to a, uh, sent it off to a magazine called Worlds of Tomorrow. I didn't hear anything, uh, you know, so I figured out with the waste can because right? I didn't know how publishing worked. And um, six months later, I get a telegram 
from them saying, look, we read your story and we want to publish it. And if, uh, if you agree, send us a telegram back and we'll send you $50. I said, $50, you know, for a year's yeah. work. Wow. But I was as happy with that sale as I have ever been with anything that I've ever sold since because that validated the fact that I, I had actually made money as a writer. Okay. Uh, so I went out and we were living in San Francisco at the time. So I went out and bought myself a writer's outfit. And my writer's outfit was a, a tweed jacket with uh, leather patches on the sleeves. Uh, Which is also exact. It's exactly what you're wearing now. Cause right now you have a writer's outfit. That's a Roger rabbit hat, a Jessica rabbit shirt with a giant Roger stuffed animal <laughs> behind you. So yeah. So little did you know this would become your writer's album. Didn't outfit. have that. They didn't have that then. So, uh, but I got the the tweed jacket, the the black turtleneck, uh, and a custom made pair of leather pants. But but from there, I, I started writing short stories and uh, never had a reject. Just kept writing them and selling them, and, and I sold a, a bunch of them. The Damon Knight who was. One of my early mentors uh, for his Orbit series, uh, so a lot of them into the uh, you know the pulp magazines, and, uh, and then I realized you know instead of writing twelve short stories, I could write one novel and hmm. maybe sell a novel instead of twelve short stories. So I spent a year writing a novel called Killer Bowl, which uh, was set in I wrote it in nineteen seventy six, and it was set in two thousand ten two thousand eleven. And it talked about uh, football played as a blood sport, kind of like Hunger Games. Um, and then uh, the, that wasn't that wasn't your first comedic effort. That wasn't. It was not. No, I, I actually, I I will I will be honest with you. I don't write funny stuff. Um, for some reason, people read my stuff and think it's hilarious, but <laughs> I do not write to be funny. I, I'm perfectly dead serious with everything I write. Even the Roger Rabbit stuff is, is noir fiction, serious stuff. And people read it and say, oh my God, this is just this laugh out loud funny. The fourth novel on my contract, I wanted to do something completely different. And uh, I wanted to incorporate the stuff that I'd come to love, which, were, which was comic books, cartoons, and noir mysteries. So I was, I was watching uh, Saturday morning cartoons one one day trying to get inspiration because two hard concepts to put together and I, I became taken not with the not with the um, cartoons but with the uh, commercials because I started seeing the Trix Rabbit and Captain Crunch Snap Crackle and Pop Tony the Tiger who were cartoon characters talking to real kids. And nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I said, well, yeah. great idea for, for a novel. What if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of world would that be? So I spent a year researching it and writing it. And I mean, I finished it. It was clearly the best thing I'd ever written. And I sent it to Doubleday. I said, here's the fourth novel in my four novel contract. And first time in my whole writing career, never had it happen before. They rejected it. My first reject. <laughs> and uh, so I said to uh, uh, I said to my editor, I said, I said, 
sure, why, why did you reject this? Just, oh, I loved it. Sure. This was funny. It was just brilliant. But it was so different from anything you've ever written before and so different from anything anybody's ever written before that I had to send it to the marketing department and, and you know, get their okay on it. And they were the ones who rejected it. So I called the head of the marketing department uh, at Doubleday and I said, hey, why did you reject this? And he said, well, he said, we all thought it was hilarious, but um, it, it doesn't fit in any category. There's no place for it on the bookstore shelf. It's not a regular adult mystery. It's not a kid's book. It's not a real science fiction book. It's not actually a fantasy. But I, there's no category for it. I can't sell it. And so I said, look, what would you do if somebody gave you The Wizard of Oz or Gulliver's Travels or Alice in Wonderland? What would you do if somebody gave you those? Yeah, because was that, I'm just curious, was that feeling uh, pretty, like, to get rejected like that in, in an entertainment industry and in an industry in general where rejection is commonplace, was that, did it make you feel a little, dare I say, hopeless or a little bit just well, like, yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, wait, wait, wait until you hear because, uh, you know, when, when I said, what would you do if you got those books? He said, well, he said, I couldn't sell those books either. So I went to my agent and I said, uh, you know, Bill, what are we going to do here? Because if I can't publish this, I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to write. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll find we'll find it at home. So we started sending it out to different publishers, different editors at the same publisher. And uh, along the way, it, it racked up 110 rejects. It was rejected 110 times. Wow. Uh, yeah, my wife used to call. And in those days, you got them by mail. You didn't get them by email like you could do today. Um, and my wife used to call my trip out to the mailbox every morning, the daily disappointments, because there'd be four, five, six rejects in the mailbox. And um, um, luckily, my agent believed in the book, never gave up hope. And finally, it landed on the desk of a young woman named Rebecca St. Martin, who was an editor of St. Martin's Press. Uh, and she was no relation. She was she just had the same name as the press. but. <laughs> Um, lucky last name. Yeah, lucky. And uh, she had just published a big bestseller for them. And um, so the head of St. Martin's Press gave her a vanity project. And he said, look, uh, for your next book, you can publish anything you want. Whatever, whatever book you want to publish, you can publish it. And that was just when Roger Rabbit came across her desk. So she saw it and she said, okay, this is the book I want to publish. She read it and loved it. And she took it to the president of the company and said, this is the book I want to publish. He said, okay, I'm going to take it home. I'm going to read it. I'll get back to you tomorrow. So we went home that night, came back tomorrow, the next day, called her in and said, Rebecca, she said, I told you you could publish anything you want, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. And, <laughs> and Rebecca, Crazy. Stepped, yeah, Rebecca stepped up to the plate. So they either publish it or I quit. So, it got published. Uh, it was published in very small quantities, um, less than five thousand copies. And so that the book comes out, more copies are ordered. Uh, in the book, well, uh, yeah, a couple of things happened. First of all, I, I got a call from Roy Disney one day at home um, before the book ever came out. It hadn't come out yet. I got a call from Roy Disney. Uh, who says, is this Gary K. Wolf? I said, yeah, it is. Said, this is Roy Disney. I said, yeah, right. <laughs> Roy Disney called <laughs> my old phone. He says, no, 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 really, Roy Disney. I said, you know, I'm wondering if you'd be interested in, LA in 
having the Disney company make a movie out of your book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit? I said, yeah, right. The book hasn't come out yet. How do you even know about it? Well, somebody at St. Martin's Press had sent them a copy. They said, we think you'd be interested in this. And they were. And um, um, they offered me more money for the rights than I'd made for all of my writing up to that point put together. And I, uh, I mean, you can't turn it down. Um, I didn't think that the book was filmable. I didn't think they would be able to make the book into a movie and do it justice because it was cartoons and humans, live action, animation. Um, and then, as we know, a movie gets picked up, a book, an option, mm -hmm. but it takes time to figure out how the heck to get this movie done. And a lot of options don't ever get made. Like you assumed Roger Rabbit would not get made, You were, but, but you were gonna get a nice handsome check. So wh who cares? Cause if it doesn't get made, it doesn't get made. At what point did you think that all was lost in the process? And then when did that switch? Uh, so they bought you know, it. There was, they, there was a time. Yeah, they bought it in 1980. And uh, I, I, like I say, I didn't think they had the horsepower to to really do it justice. And for a long time, they proved me right. Um, at one point, Roy Disney came to me and said, we're not having much success doing this as a, as a live action animated movie with animated characters. So what would you say, what would you think if instead of animated characters, we had the cartoon characters wear costumes like they do at Disneyland, you know, and the costume characters. And I'm thinking, oh, geez, I'm gonna, I'm going to have the Disney stable. I'm going to have Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant. And I'm going to have, <laughs> I'm going to have Haley Mills as Jessica, Dean Jones as the rabbit and Kurt Russell as baby Herman. And I said, you know, don't you think that compromises the principle of just a little bit? And he said, yeah, concept. He said, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Michael Eisner came in and he brought Jeff Katzenberg with him, Jeffrey. And um, they had worked together before a number of big, big projects and uh, once they came in, they did something that nobody at Disney had ever done before. They brought in an outside producer to produce one of their movies. And uh, the outside producer they brought in for Roger Rabbit was a little known guy named Steven Spielberg. I mean, who's ever heard of him, right? And, he, uh, yeah. and uh, as soon as Steve Spielberg got involved, uh, the whole project went into a higher gear. Uh, he brought in Bob Zemeckis to direct. Uh, Bob Zemeckis uh, and Steven selected Dick Williams to do the principal animation, to be the animation director. Um, Who, by, for anyone who doesn't know, is an animation legend. Yeah, an animation legend, yeah. Uh, he won four Academy Awards for um, uh, the Pink Panther and a number of other projects. He won an Academy Award for Roger Rabbit, uh, just a, a legendary guy. And um, Bob C brought in Kathleen Turner, whom he'd worked with on Romancing the Stone to do Jessica's voice. Um, we discovered Charlie Fleischer performing in a comedy club in LA. Uh, the guy was just, just hilarious and was a voice actor. And somebody just pointed out to me that nowadays when they make animated movies, they hire well-known actors to do the voice of, you know, Chris Pratt, uh, um, Gwyneth Paltrow, whomever. They hire well-known actors who generally use their own voices. I mean, when you hear them, 
it's generally their voice. Yeah. But in Ryan, well, even uh, Tom Hanks yeah, as, Tom Woody, as Woody, it's Tom Hanks. It's Tom Hanks. Yeah. But in the in the days of Roger Rabbit, they hired voice actors who acted with their voices, and when you hear Roger Rabbit's voice. Uh, you you would never know that that was Charlie Fleischer. And in fact, Charlie Fleischer did a number of the other voices. He was one of the weasels, and I can't remember. I, I can't remember who did Benny the Cat, but uh, 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 all of them, Lou Hirsch, who did uh, Baby Herman, I believe, um, all of them did voice acting. Even Mel Blanc, who came in and did all the Warner Brothers characters, um, each character. When you say a lot of what a lot of what you call what was voice acting then is now called like people on SNL who do impressions, Bill Hader, someone like that who can do any voice or like Probably, that yeah. is what a Charlie was yeah. in that era. That's what a Charlie Fleischer was. Yeah. And unfortunately uh, they don't do that much anymore with animated movies. They just, and, and I can understand, I can understand it in a weird kind of way because uh, with an animated movie, it's always a crapshoot. It's going to be a, an adult movie, a kid's movie. So if you can get some well-known star to come in and do one of your voices, um, great. You know, that star will bring people in who uh, follow that star. You know, if in, in the days of Roger Rabbit, um, they wanted somebody bankable to, to be Eddie Valiant because... They didn't really know if this movie was going to be, you know, an adult movie, a kid movie. Was it going to be any good? Was it going to be Howard the Duck? Uh, you know, they don't know. <laughs> they wanted somebody who was bankable. Um, uh, but uh, they, you know, they wanted Harrison Ford. Well, I, I wanted Harrison Ford. Everybody, but when he found out how long it was going to take to make the movie, um, he could have said he couldn't do it. And uh, so then we went to Paul Newman huh. and he said he couldn't do it because of the time. So uh, we interviewed a lot of people, Bill Peterson, who I think would have done a fairly good job. Um, uh, Kurt Russell, <coughs> a lot of people. But, you know, finally uh, we hired the guy that was the perfect Eddie Million. And that, of course, as you know, was Bill Murray. We hired Bill Murray and Eddie Million. And, uh, it became obvious really early on that uh, Bill Murray uh, really did not believe that these cartoon characters were real. And if he didn't believe it, it couldn't make you believe it. So, I mean, he was like, oh, you're a talking rabbit. So, uh, How far did he get in the process? Not far. <laughs> not far at all. So they bought him out of his contract. He got a million dollars and uh, went on his way. And then they kept looking and finally found the, the but they, you know, they're looking for a bankable guy, a guy with a name. Finally, they come up with a guy who is, uh, you know, the perfect Eddie Valiant. And that, of course, is Eddie Murphy. So, you know, Eddie Murphy ah. is Eddie Murphy. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're rewriting the script to make Eddie Valiant funnier than the tunes. And, you know, that doesn't work. So, um, so he, you know, Eddie Murphy goes on his way. He gets a million dollars and a Ferrari. They gave him a million dollars and a Ferrari. Uh, so, but on the, in the meantime, to, the, to leave, to leave, to leave. Yeah. On the other side of Hollywood, uh, Brian De Palma is making um, uh, the Untouchables, and he wants Bobby De Niro to be Al Capone. Oh, Bobby De Niro is unavailable, so 
De Palma hires Bob Hoskins to be Al Capone. And, um, um, you know, about two or three weeks into shooting, Bobby De Niro calls De Palma and says, hey, I wrapped early, I can be Al Capone. So now Bob Hoskins has got a million dollars and nothing to do, right? So, <laughs> so he comes in. It sounds like a pretty easy world. Yeah, you just it really, a, it, you it get fired did. from something, you get a million dollars, maybe a Ferrari, it, it and then you worked. go on your way. And you never yeah. Yeah, that's the secret to success in Hollywood. So um, Hoskins comes in, and, and how is he going to carry that off? But he came in and did the reading, and not only did he do it with a absolutely authentic L.A. private eye American accent, but he made you believe that rabbit was real. I mean, he was he was performing on an empty stage in front of nothing, and he made you believe that rabbit was real. And I think without Bob Hoskins, I, I think that movie would not have been half of what it was. And, and you know, the the other regret I have about the movie, and really the only regret I have about the movie, Bob Hoskins did such a phenomenal job of acting in that movie. He made it look so easy that he wasn't even nominated for an Academy Award. And Which he, is an absolute shame because what to be able to basically do the performance twice. Yeah. Yeah. And to make you believe it and to be to have your co-stars not be there. And this is before CG, this is before people were doing this all the time in front of green screens. He was on sets with nobody. He he made it all up in his head. And uh, toward the end of the movie, he told me that he could see the rabbit. I mean, the rabbit was real to him. And he, uh, I saw him later when he was in Boston filming uh, filming uh, uh, mermaids. And um, he told me that, that the rabbit existed in his vision for six months after the movie. He could still see the rabbit. <laughs> um, and the guy was just, just a phenomenal actor, and I, I miss him greatly. Great talent. Gone too soon. And so Roger Rabbit gets made, come, comes out. Uh, were people at the time worried about oh. this movie that cost an uh, absolute fortune to make? Uh. Is it even going to touch? Is it even going to make back half its money? Yeah, well, it, is it, it gonna, yeah, the original is budget. Is anyone going to see it? original budget was $35 million and it wound up costing $75 million. Um, and um, nobody really knew whether it was going to be a kid's movie or an adult movie. Uh, there was very little uh, released about it. Uh, very few clips, almost nothing. And I, in fact, somebody asked me just the other day because uh, I went to the premiere and uh, I don't know, the premiere was at uh, Radio City Music Hall in New York City. And I had a hotel that was just across the street. And I could actually look out and see Radio City Music Hall from my hotel. Uh, and the next the next morning I woke up early. I woke up at seven and I looked out the window and there was a line around the block to come in and see this movie. Now, huh. I, I, and somebody asked me, well, how did people find out about this movie? How did they know it was any good? I actually don't know. I, I don't have a clue. But from day one, from day one, there was a line around the block 
at there and then it showed at Cinerama in LA, lying around the block there. Uh, theaters started doing additional screenings. Theaters started showing it at seven in the morning so that people could, could see it so they could have more screenings and um, became the highest grossing movie of the year. From the military kid in Vietnam who wasn't going to write yeah. to the uh, short story writer submitting for $50 to getting your book deal to having this uh, dismissed and denied and rejected and rejection morning having being every morning to now it's bought by Disney and then it becomes the biggest movie of the year and a sort a cultural phenomenon Roger Rabbit from from what I know became a bigger character for them for for a period of time than Mickey yes um, right. Well, right. and so uh, I, I mean at what point are you pinching yourself thinking, I can't believe this is happening. Every day, every day. Um, I, I, I take nothing for granted. Uh, I, I, I look at my career and I say, what did I do to deserve this? I don't know. Um, I, I still, I get up and write every day and have for my whole life. Um, but I don't write, I don't write to sell to the movies. I don't, I don't even write to sell books i i get up and i write simply to amuse myself it is called the book business it's called the movie business it's mm -hmm. it's about making it's about writing the book and there is the business part and the money comes with it mm -hmm. and recently i thought about you because the there was a whole thing with scarlett johansson and getting mistreated by the walt disney company mm -hmm. and you uh your relationship with disney was amazing and then some things went uh, yeah, not the way you wanted. Well, we, well, we had yeah. we had some disagreements over uh, how certain bits of merchandise and certain bits of promotion should be accounted, and um, that's that's just the nature of business. Um, if you're a writer, and especially if you're a successful writer, you make a lot of money at it. Eventually, you are going to wind up dealing with as many lawyers. Uh, as uh, you are producers, directors, and actors. And it's just the nature of, of the beast. And uh, in this case, we had some disagreements. Um, we weren't going to cave. They weren't going to cave. So um, we, uh, uh, we had to go to court and we had a, a court trial. Um, it, everything was amicably resolved. And more than that, I'm not at liberty to say, but uh, everybody came away uh, satisfied. Um, just this part of the business, and you know, if if you go into this kind of business, you have to assume that at some point you're going to have to do that, or else people aren't going to take you seriously. Um, Scarlet, um, you know, I didn't really follow that, but uh, she apparently had a, a, a big beef, but. They didn't have to, they decided that they didn't want to uh, hack off every, every actor in Hollywood by taking Scarlett <laughs> Johansson to the mat and, you know, kicking her to the curb. Uh, so they settled with her uh, long before it ever went to court. And if you read the terms of the settlement, uh, the, they say that they settled things amicably, which is exactly what they said when... Um, and and that's 
what's interesting about it is that it we get into it, and I know myself too with the industry. Uh, I've, I've never made a movie like Roger Rabbit, but you will. The, you will. I will. Yeah. Everybody who and, I know, you're the one I think will. No. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. And I also, it's just interesting where the we come from a place of love and creativity, and then it it gets sucked into this business world at times that can be really a foreign world that we then have to learn or I've had to learn and you had to figure out as you went because it's not that's not what we're meant to be doing that's not what we're what we're, we're we think we're going to be doing you have to you have to be very careful and choose people who are going to support and help you um and uh honest people uh creative people and knowledgeable people. And I've been very fortunate uh, in my entire career, I've only had two attorneys. Uh, I can't tell you how many agents I've had. I, I lost track. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many managers I've had. I lost track. But <clears throat> the people that matter, the people who keep me out of trouble, my attorneys, only two. Speaking of on track, what uh, right now, is there a certain something that you're working on that is of specific passion or something that you wrote that's coming out? Uh, I, I just finished the Jessica Rabbit, uh, the Jessica Rabbit novel, Jessica Rabbit, serious business, serious is spelled with an X. And um, <laughs> it is a, uh, an origin story. It tells you where Jessica Rabbit came from, how she, uh, <clears throat> how she went from a poor, simple shop girl uh, to become Jessica Rabbit, uh, how she met Roger, and how Toontown came to be, and where Toons came from, uh, and where did Toons come from? I don't know, but so a real origin story. Yeah, a real origin story. It's, it's, it's a real origin story. So I just finished that. Um, I'm currently working on a new Roger Eddie um, uh, novel, which has a couple of really interesting. Uh, things going on with it. It's, it's like lightning in a bottle. Roger was lightning in a bottle. And to catch it twice, uh, who knows? Maybe never maybe knows? never twice in a lifetime. I don't know. And the the uh, it's interesting because the, the other takes you have on getting Roger Rabbit back onto the big screen or the small screen or the streaming screen or whatever it might be, with uh, the two, with the Jessica Rabbit origin story or the Eddie and Roger book, are interesting because th we never got a sequel that was, for I believe so many reasons, uh, there was it was going to probably cost too much money is the is what it comes down to. I think, uh, right? there, there are lots of reasons, but uh, the, you know the main reason I think was that uh, that Jeff Katzenberg left Disney. I went into partnership with Steve Spielberg and uh, there was some bad blood between Jeff and Michael Eisner and um, Jeff vowed that he would never do anything to make Disney another nickel. But of course, Steven controlled the rights to Roger Rabbit and seemed like a slab dunk to me. I don't know, but maybe that's why I'm not a film executive. Well, it seems like a slam dunk to me too, because I, uh, I want it to happen. I mean, it's nice that, the rides are still around and the, yeah. the characters live on in the cartoons yeah. and so on, but it would be nice. And I'm glad you're keeping, uh, keeping so, the voice so, alive with your, with your writing. So do you have Disney stock? 
Uh, no. Oh, well, we should, you should buy some Disney stock and I will vote you in as president. And then I'm going to buy I'm going to buy Disney stock when they make when they greenlight the Roger Rabbit too. sequel. <laughs> yeah, so it might be it might be a while or maybe we can just get this to happen from this uh, from this conversation. All right. The hopeless there you go. There, there's your hopeless case, right? There's your hopeless case. Look, yeah, the hopeless and I've got to ask you, is there is there something in particular right now in the industry or just in general that you feel that you need a little hope boost with? I hate to come across as Mr. Joviality, but uh, I, I've, I'm i probably the wrong guy for you to have on this show because I've never, I've never looked at anything in my life as hopeless. Uh, every obstacle that I've ever encountered I generally think about it for a while and figure a way to overcome it or go around it or go under it or go over it or do something about it. Um, and I, I've led a charmed life. I've, I've never had major disappointments. Everything that I've tried to do, I've done. And even things that I didn't know I wanted to do, like the Roger Rabbit movie, uh, just happened. And um, I don't know why that is, you know? <laughs> I think what you just did and said is what we're going to have to copy and use every for every episode at the end of the show. <laughs> well, all right, then. There you go. Go over, go over it, under it, around it, through it. Get it done. Yeah, and then get it done. No, that's... In, in some way, you can always find... The, the hope and positive and keep on marching Absolutely. in life. And that's, Absolutely. That's you can, you can wallow beautiful. You can wallow in your disappointments and you can uh, you can accept your defeats uh, or you, you you don't have to. I mean, you don't have to do that. You, you can be positive and keep going and figure out what it is that you have to do to get done what you want done. And I, I do that 10 times a day. I mean, uh, life isn't all roses. Uh, you, you know, you still, you still get uh, people who say, oh, you, you know, nobody, I, I, I can't publish Jessica Rabbit novel because nobody knows who Jessica Rabbit is. <laughs> I mean, how do you counter what? that? How do you counter that? <laughs> well, Gary, this has been so, uh, so fun to, to dive in with you. And you just brought, you brought hope for me to me and uh to the show and to all that we do because thanks Aaron. it's it, even even the tough times for you and you went over some where you could look at it in a people could would, could look at them in negative lights and with a, le a negative lens and you don't and that's commendable impressive and really you always gotta you, you always gotta accentuate the positive i mean you you always gotta think about where you want to go and that will let you figure out how you want to get there. And uh, anything that comes up is just a temporary roadblock. You can go around it. Oh, let me give it. Let me give a shout out to. Uh, oh yes, my, we web, a shout out. my website. Uh, www. Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, where you can buy all of my books. You can read my ramblings. Uh, all of my books have now come out as audio books, um, which is it saves me a lot of time because before they came out as audio books, if you wanted to get my book as an audio book, then you would send me the money and I would call you and read it to you over the phone. And it just <laughs> saves me a lot of time this way. 
that saves weeks. Yeah, saves weeks. Um, I also just uh, put up a bunch of podcasts that I've done over the uh, last couple of years, and I've got a section on podcasts so you can you can hear me uh, tell my tale. Uh, you can you can buy my books um, and just give it a look. Uh, www.garywolf.com. And uh, and also, what's your Facebook so that if people do uh, want to Gary period K period Wolf. Yeah, and if you want right. to friend me on Facebook, you got to do it pretty soon because I'm filling up my dance card. I, you know, I I, <laughs> I have almost five thousand friends, and I uh, of those five thousand friends, I actually know probably three of them. So, uh, <laughs> and one's me. And one's you. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's two left. <laughs> well, thank you for, uh, and go to GaryWolf.com. Check out all of his work. We've covered some of it, but the, the catalog is massive of <laughs> the sure. things of the accomplishments that Gary's done. And, uh, and we'll, until next time, thank you. And uh, I'll sure. see you in Toontown. All right. Take care. It was such a treat to talk to Gary and to have him on the show and I hope you all learned a little bit more about the process and just how you never you should never give up no matter what you never give up because you never know what's around the corner just like how Gary was saying and I think his thing at the end about about always being hopeful is uh is a mantra that our show takes yeah and so I'm, I'm really glad he just said that and it was a really great talk and even to the not giving up thing. And yes, you know that, 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 that that's something that people say all the time. But if you think about it, how many people are trying for one thing or the same thing, trying for a goal? And just how many of those people want to or will give up? Just be one of the ones that doesn't. And there's, a, there's, there's enough space, you know? Like it's, it's you know, uh, it's so I, I think everything that Gary said was, was really, really great. So thank you, Gary, for joining this episode of The Hopeless Show. Yeah, thank you. And so we have a couple more things and then we'll we'll wrap up, but we we have to do a uh, our debate because I think this is an important one. Mm-hmm. Um so the the debate is how do we handle friends who want to cancel us and, and by us I mean anyone for voicing an opinion that isn't like there's about cancel culture or about something going on in culture or are we just always guilty if we aren't woke enough and i've experienced some of this i'm pretty sure you have mm-hmm. so what do you think the way to the debate is like what what do we do to to like not have to deal with this or to to not be canceled by friends or to get friends irate because I have a take, but I don't know. What do you think, Rohit? I I think that the current climate that we're in right now is there's, I think this is something that, that I found that was kind of interesting. I was just reading recently is that there has been a sort of decline in religion. And, you know, I kind of grew up in a not really a practicing religious family, but you know, we observed some traditions and I went to Catholic school for 12 years. I wouldn't consider myself a religious person. I consider myself a religious adjacent person, someone that's very respectful of religion. Um, but as you see across the world, especially the United States, practicing religion and everything has kind of gone down. 
that doesn't necessarily mean you have a completely, you know, atheist society and all that. It's whatever. It's great if you are too. But there is still, especially at a young age, you have a group of people that are looking for something to believe in, something to sort of strive for. And I think what happens is um, you have people that don't have a lot of world experience. And I'm talking about like a lot of this young Gen Z folks and, you know, they don't have a lot of experience yet. They haven't worked that much. They haven't lived out in the world. They're in college, whatever it is. And when we were in school, remember how we, we thought we knew what the whole world was, right? We kind of thought like we knew better than our parents. We knew better than everybody else. We were just the smartest people Mm. going. And it turns out they were right about a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know how much you don't know until you get older and you realize I still don't know and I can fully admit it and see it now. And I think they're coming from this generation where they were not being disciplined in school. They're not being taught at home. They expect the schools to like teach them life lessons, but also parents and school, nobody is like punishing these kids. They are literally told that they can do anything that they want. Not everybody can do anything that they want. Everybody has the ability to do to the best of their abilities, but not everybody has the abilities to do everything. Like I can't play in the NBA, no matter how much, <laughs> like if people tell me that, oh, I can do, you can do anything you put your mind to it. And I think these people have grown up without being told no. They've been grown up and always told that they're great and the best and that they're right. And one, and their parents have given them everything. They've grown up very coddled. And it's often these are middle class to wealthy people that grow up in privileged areas and privileged neighborhoods and privileged upbringings. And what they do is they carry these expectations into their world. Now they carry this, hmm. th- these expectations and also they, they value like what they consider justice over fairness. And, and I think that there is a, a, a nuance there. And I think that they feel because they got everything in the world, everybody should get everything. And if everybody isn't getting everything that they expect handed to them um, or treated as well as they were, that it is a crime and an injustice. And yeah, it's, it's, I'm not trying to justify yeah. it, but it's just explaining the mentality. And I think it's a very immature, very childish mentality of the woke sort of mafia. And I don't think it's a bad thing to be aware. And I don't think it's a bad thing to respect other people. Neither do you. And I don't think, I don't no. think any of our listeners would ever get that impression of us. We love making jokes and we love all that, but like there is a, there's a, large, very vocal population that has a lot of sway when they shouldn't, that is trying to use their words to claim power and to claim power and then exercise that power in an autocratic authoritarian way that enforces their morals upon others and in their own religious way, bringing this back to religion, literally apply the laws of blasphemy and call people heretics for not following their orthodoxy, which is based on such a soft foundation with little world experience. I have no debate here. I think you said that better than I've heard it said. It's a really interesting, profound way to analyze it. And because all I was going to add is all I can add to completely agreeing with you 
is someone said to me recently about one of the topics that was on the news. Yeah, but Aaron, you wouldn't like it if people were making jokes about Jews or about people with disabilities because those are two, th I have learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. And and I said, are you kidding me? Yes, I do if they're good jokes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. And I then said, and also, by the way, you and all the people, like a lot of people on this, in this group have made fun of me for like spelling errors and things that I just do because of my learning dis disabilities all the time. You guys have made fun of me and made jokes and they're not even funny jokes about it all the time for years. So what's your point? And what, what I got from that was they changed the subject and like went back to what they were talking about. And so that's, I think the softness is what you're talking about. It was like, try to prove a point. Oh, I get shot down. So let me just go back to, cause I don't, they don't, they don't. Yeah. There's just not a, a full understanding of what's going on. Yeah. And we've, and, and it's like, you know, we've turned into a world where speech is violence. Violence is speech. Silence is violence. Like, I don't even understand, you know, a lot of this stuff anymore, but what you're seeing is I think a really immature approach to the world and and it all comes and you know and then one of the common argument that you probably got is like listen don't be punching down and I think even Dave Chappelle talked about this and I agree with it a million percent I've always thought it the fact that people call it punching down when you make fun of other people as a joke or whatever like the fact is when you say talk about punch down that means you see people as beneath you below you and that, yeah. that they see that there's layers and that the people that are below them do not have the cognitive facility, nor do they have the self-agency to be able to deal with or approach that joke or even laugh at it. And if they do laugh at it, that means they have their own internalized misogyny or white supremacy or whatever. And this comes from people that are not parts of these so-called, you know, these other classes, right, that they see as below them you have these people that are being saviors. And we talked about this on a previous yeah. episode. Saviors are just as bad as the actual racists. And because they are so, their internalized racism means that they have to look out for all the, the brown people like me, all the people that are, you know, differently abled, all the people that are whatever, right? They have to look out for us and make sure that you know, nobody's saying mean things. Now mean things are mean words. They're literal violence. And so, yeah. So saviors and racists, they both can F off. Um, but I want the saviors to realize they're not that very different if they talk about punching down and they talk about these other things. So that's well said. And it is written. It is written. Yeah. That Rowett. was well said, Rohit. Thanks. Thank Andrew. you for, uh, for doing that. And, uh, that debate turned into an agreement. Yeah. <laughs> like some of our debates but, uh, where it's uh we're going to debate where it's like, imagine if it's like the, I don't know when the presidential debates happened when it was Biden and Trump and they're like, yeah, you know, I, I think we should expand Obamacare. And then Trump was like, I agree with you, Joe. <laughs> it's fascinating, fascinating television. <laughs> You're like, yeah, riveting. Um, riveting. So we have, but we have a, a one hope in 60 and then we'll wrap it up. Cause we're, we're going long today. Uh, 
but and I have no idea what you're about to what you're about to present to well, me. But let me start this timer, Aaron. So um, uh, heading into actually, let me get this timer. All right, and heading into a large food shortage, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong Un has asked his citizens to eat less until the year 2025. <laughs> Hope. I'm not, I'm not laughing. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not punching down. I'm not laughing. That's just funny because he's fat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and he will continue to be fat. And he'll continue to eat and be fat. The... I just keep thinking of like a fat guy telling everyone not to eat a lot. And that gives me hope just because it's funny. But I feel terrible for the citizens of North Korea. In And now the fact that food is another part of it. The only other hope I'll give is I think they they should sneak food. <laughs> Try to sneak it and not get caught because we've all done that before in our lives. So just learn to sneak food. And also... Yeah, and and don't be born in North Korea. Yeah, I mean, dude, what if there could? It's be, awful. I mean, what if we could airdrop food along with? Oh, like, that's a good truth. idea. You know, like uh, things written in Korean, like or like with flash drives, or I mean, it is a communist dictatorship. Or, so people would be killed if found with that. But or why don't we? Even more than airdrop, why don't we just say we understand there's a problem. We are here to to help your citizens. We still aren't at peace with you guys, but we believe in humanity. So we're here to help your citizens. Although there's hunger problems in so much of the world that then that means we should do that everywhere. At least they're getting some food, right? Yeah. It's not like starve like yeah. in Africa where there's places where people are just don't have any food. Yeah, so it could be yeah. Maybe that maybe that idea of a humanitarian mission could kind of maybe build a bridge. Um, maybe so, it could. We give them food and they start acting like sane people. I don't yeah, know. it's it's a yeah. tough one. It's just it's a really funny image of a guy like just saying who's so fat saying eat less. Like it's just weird. <laughs> like don't eat. But I'm about to eat a lot more. Like, what a jerk. <laughs> what a bad human. Yeah, this is, it is something that is, it's scary. I mean, there's people that say, like, America is the worst country in the world. And we have our problems. But, man, those people have actually never been to another country, nor have they read about what is actually happening in some parts of the world. But, um, well, yeah. Well, let's, let's end with something hopeful because that was depressing. It was. It most certainly was. And here's something that I feel hopeful for that has nothing to do with North Korea, but everything to do with what's coming up. I'm excited for November. Interesting. No real reason in particular. I just think November is going to be a good month. I hope a so. hopeful month. I mean, November is like the halftime between Halloween and Christmas. Um, yeah, I like it. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's scary because that's like a big part of my work rush is like nobody wants to work on Christmas holidays. So they like if we've got to produce stuff, it is just like 
rushing to get at that stuff out the door before. Um, but yeah, it is a lot of stress, but you're right. It's almost like there's mandatory take time off Thanksgiving, black Friday, all that kind of shit. So yeah, you know, there's enforced days off and it's time for family eating some Turkey. Um, and yeah, I think, I think we'll, we'll hit our, our thankfulness episode. We will. And we're grateful for all our listeners. I'm surprised that black Friday, the term hasn't been canceled. Oh yeah. It's well, probably coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, well, I do hope though, until then that, you know, everybody kick off your November in the most wonderful way. It's finally cold. I mean, here in LA today, we're recording this on October 29th and it is 88 degrees outside today. Um, it's, it's, and it's like 97 in the office right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. Um, so hopefully it starts getting cold here again. Um, but for everybody else, enjoy hopefully some incoming snow and enjoy the upcoming time with your family. And we still have a few episodes to go before Thanksgiving. Um, but until then, stay hopeful. Yes. Thanks for listening. Yes. And you can follow us at The Hopeless Show on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Aaron at The Aaron Wolf on all your favorite social platforms. And you can follow me at Vohit for Rohit with the number four also on pretty much all those same platforms. And yeah. and it is written. And it is written. And also, speaking of written, write us a review, five stars in your favorite app store and um, write something funny in, in the comments and we may read it during the show. See you next time. See you next time. When the world seems cold and bleak and you just can't take it anymore Here it comes, that glimmer of hope a light shines through the dark It's a hopeless show With Aaron and Rohit, whoa